at the end of the day, immigration is fundamentally an, an economic issue. It's many other things, too, but it is an economic issue. Allowing a large number of new workers into some segment of the labor market reduces power for workers in that segment, reduces pressure to raise wages in that segment. Uh, and if you look at American public policy in recent decades, our willingness to ever expand the supply of less skilled, lower wage workers through immigration has, in fact, had the effect of suppressing the wages of both native workers and the immigrants who are already here. And it it has a corrosive effect on inequality, I think. And, and it's a it's an important piece of understanding why wages have not been growing and conversely, it's an incredible lever available to policymakers to pull. If we want wages to rise faster for low-wage workers, we have the power to say we are going to stop adding more workers through immigration to that segment of the labor market. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and this week it's just me. Uh, Nick is off at a conference in Ogden, Utah. He is very popular on the podcast and conference circuit these days, so we cut him loose to go do that. Uh, This week we had back on one of our favorite people in all of American public policy. We had on today Oren Cass. But before I get to that, uh, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org to find all the information about what American Moments up to this summer. You can find Amcanon, which is our compilation of books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, and more uh, on all the issues we care about. You can find a sign-up form for AM Fridays. This is our summer lecture series on Capitol Hill, where we're bringing public policy experts like Warren Cass and Stephen Miller and Russ Vogt and so many more to talk about the variety of issues. This is a lunch series for junior staff on Capitol Hill. We have a room booked in the Senate for the 10 Fridays uh, between uh, June 9th and, I believe, August 11th. So go fill out that form and we can get you the room number and make sure you get RSVP for that. Be sure to rate and review this podcast and just in general, fill out AmericanMoment.org slash join if you'd like to come meet with us. If you're an intern in D.C. this summer and you believe in the issues that we care about here at American Moment, you can come by our office and meet with us. Um, you'll get some cold brew coffee, you get a Diet Coke, a Perrier, whatever you'd like, and we'll sit down and talk about how to make sure that you do vastly better than every other intern in your office and succeed. We are here as a resource to you guys. Take advantage of it. We want to help you get integrated with our movement and our community here on Capitol Hill. Um, but as I mentioned before, we had back on this week Oren Cass, who is the executive director of American Compass, the author of The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America, 2018, and a contributing opinion writer for the Financial Times. And he uh, came back on our podcast to talk about a fantastic new collection that he recently put out um, called Jobs Americans Won't Do, or sorry, I got that wrong. Freudian slip. It's jobs Americans would do, playing off the trope uh, that there are jobs Americans won't do. And that's why we need to have mass migration, especially at the lower ends, to dispossess the American people of their prosperity, their dignity, their security and their country. Um, That's my words, not Oren's. But we had a fantastic discussion about the state of legal immigration in America and American Compass's proposals for reorienting that legal migration program towards one that benefits Americans' national interest. Um, The contention is simple. Uh, all these free marketeers in D.C. talk all the time about how supply and demand exists and market forces exist, yet they conveniently shut up and clam up or obfuscate when it comes to the labor market. The truth is that the mass cheap labor movement uh, that has been prevalent since the 1965 Hart-Seller Immigration Act has been a disaster for the American economy, and we go into the comprehensive case for that with Oren today. It's a fantastic episode, one of the pantheon of American Moments' most useful episodes, I think. I think you guys will enjoy it. I don't want to spoil too much of it. You guys know Oren has fantastic work. Go to AmericanCompass.org to find out more about it. Link the piece in the show notes below. We'll go straight away now to Oren Cass to talk everything legal immigration. Oren, thank you for coming back on the podcast. Always a good sign if I'm invited back. <laughs> so you put a piece up on American Compass's website recently as part of a new collection on immigration. Uh, 
we care about a whole variety of issues at American Moment, but when it comes to my personal psychotic obsessions, immigration is is high in that list. Um, one might argue the foremost. And this piece approached immigration from not the sort of shiny news items of Title 42 or, you know, uh, the invasion at the border, all of which are, are real things and, and bad things. We've recently done episodes on it, but on the question of legal immigration um, and how uh, it turns out that labor markets have supply and demand like anything else. Uh, why don't you explain what the broad thesis of that piece and American Compass's approach on the question of immigration is? And uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. You know, it's funny you mentioned like the Title 42 thing. I think it ended up being that we released it, you know, literally the like the same day Title 42 expired. And, you know, always pleased from a from a communications perspective. But for us, that wasn't the hook. The hook was all of the discussions that have been going on about labor shortages. Um, and it's been really interesting, I think, over the last year or so to see the rhetoric spin up on on both sides of, of the political aisle about this idea that we have a labor shortage that uh, you know, is unemployment too low? Is it driving inflation? And of course, each side then has its own set of proposals in response to that. The one thing that both sides say we should do in response to that is increase immigration. <laughs> uh, and what's so fascinating about that is it it is an explicit concession that, as you just said, immigration affects labor markets. Um, one one would think that that is an extremely obvious and non-controversial statement to make. Um, but in in recent decades, there has been this strong push, which I would argue is almost entirely pretextual from people who, for for other reasons, want to support higher levels of of legal immigration and just open borders and a failure to enforce the law generally. There's this push to say, no, no, immigration doesn't affect the labor market. Um, in fact, it, it doesn't do anything to the wages of especially lower wage workers already here. And yet at this moment now, when we see a very tight labor market, we see concern are rising wages driving inflation. People have just run to this argument that, well, if we if if we increase immigration, that will solve this. It will loosen the labor market. It will reduce pressure on wages. And by the way, that is exactly correct. But it's it's a massive admission by all involved of the thing that everybody already knew, which is that at the end of the day, immigration is fundamentally an, an economic issue. It's many other things, too, but it is an economic issue. Allowing a large number of new workers into some segment of the labor market reduces power for workers in that segment, reduces pressure to raise wages in that segment. Uh, and if you look at American public policy in recent decades, our willingness to ever expand the supply of less skilled, lower wage workers through immigration has, in fact, had the effect of suppressing the wages of both native workers and the immigrants who are already here. And it it has a corrosive effect on inequality, I think. And, and it's a it's an important piece of understanding why wages have not been growing and conversely, it's an incredible lever available to policymakers to pull. If we want wages to rise faster for low-wage workers, we have the power to say we are going to stop adding more workers through immigration to that segment of the labor market. So take a historical view on this for me. What was the inflection point or series of inflection points in the last 100 years or whatever timeline makes sense where immigration policy really started having a distortive effect downward on wages? It's a good question. I mean, if you think about just the, the general sprawl of, of immigration policy, you obviously had a period a century ago um, of very high immigration, although interestingly, we're reaching the point where a century ago marks the, the flipping of that switch. Mm -hmm. The period of high immigration was really sort of 1890 up up to World War One, in the aftermath of World War One in the 1920s is where the U.S. really flips its policy and, and much more tightly restricts mm -hmm. uh, immigration. That remains in force until the 1960s, um, when I believe it's in 1965, we significantly liberalize immigration policy. And so then we have this era, 1965 
through the present where, in general, we've had a very liberal immigration policy. And then really over the last 20 or 30 years, we've had just a sort of refusal to enforce immigration law at all to some extent. And and so I think it's important to note that that illegal immigration is an important part of this picture, particularly because illegal immigration tends to particularly skew toward that lower end of the labor market. Um, legal, legal immigration brings in a population of workers um, that probably skews more than ideally it should toward lower wage workers. But it's when you add on top of that the the enormous number of illegal workers who are particularly corrosive to the market because they are working under the table um, that, that I think you get these worse effects. And so you know, on all of these issues, whether we're talking about globalization and trade, whether we're talking about the decline of labor unions, whether we're talking about immigration, I always hesitate to suggest you should do some sort of econometric analysis and, you know, find the correlation in this year versus versus that year, because I think, um, among other things, you can you can run the analysis any way you yeah. <laughs> any way you want. Um, but also the way that these effects transmit are are a lot more attenuated in a lot of cases. So it's not just that you sort of open up immigration and now you have more workers and therefore wages decline. It's also that if you're somebody thinking about starting a business and look around and say, oh, I'm going to have basically as much low wage labor as I want in many cases under the table that I don't even have to follow the law with respect to, you're going to build a very different kind of business. Right. Business models originate from an implied system where cheap low-wage labor is available. Exactly. And so, I mean, a classic illustration of this is the construction industry, Mm -hmm. where productivity in the construction industry has actually been declining Mm -hmm. for about 50 years. It requires more labor to do the same construction today than it did in the 1960s. And Um, and would that be because it went from sort of a a higher skilled profession to sort of a brute force just throw people at it profession or how would you I think there are a lot of things going on I think you know folks on the right will fairly say that regulation is also a big piece of it Mm -hmm. so again I I wouldn't ever do a single factor analysis but if you compare to what you might hypothetically have expected if you had a tight labor market if you had to pay good wages if you if you were focused on developing skills in the workforce you would expect productivity to be growing at one two percent a year that would easily outweigh any sort of regulatory issues. Mm. And so you you should expect to be twice as productive today. Um, and so the fact that instead the approach that the industry has clearly taken is, well, we'll just find more not especially skilled labor when we need it. Um, again, you're not going to find that in your econometric analysis of, well, when did more immigrants enter, which regional market and so forth. Um, but you are going to see it in just a, a massive loss in good high wage jobs and and productivity for for the society generally. And so, you know, what I would say broadly to <laughs> to actually answer your question, I I think what you see is that we had, as with so many areas of policy, um, an an economy and a labor market in the you know post World War II up until sixties or seventies era. That was focused on tight labor market, assumed that higher wages are a good thing, uh, and built the most prosperous middle class in the world. And then you have an era from roughly 1970 to the present where we flipped to this idea that um, we just want as much cheap stuff as possible. And therefore, in effect, workers and work are just a commodity like wood or oil. And the more and cheaper it is, the better. And that is reflected in lots of policies, uh, but certainly immigration is one of them. And and I think we've we we see the results in the economy all around us. Yeah, I think a particularly useful way to to navigate this conversation might be to to chop it up into three parts: the the low end of the labor market, the middle, uh, and then you know the highest end, the Einsteins that I'm regularly informed are the entirety of our immigration policy. On the low end. Where is most low-end immigrant labor concentrated in terms of industry? Well, it's it's in low-wage industries, and so it's in it's in the the personal service sector, um, and you know whether you're thinking about you know food service, um, landscaping, lawn care, personal services, 
uh, concentrated in agriculture, obviously concentrated in in the lower end of of the construction market. Uh, and and you see this in the data. We have very good data on what share of the workforce in any given uh, industry or occupation is is native born uh, versus versus foreign born. And down at that very low end of the labor market, jobs that pay you know less than thirty thousand a year, um, you have upwards of of thirty percent. Probably about a third of the entire workforce is. Uh, immigrant workers, and again, I think that probably wildly undercounts because of illegal. Um, yeah, and, and some illegal immigrants will show up in that data, but they are, relatively speaking, less likely to mm-hmm. to report and be be captured by it. Um, by contrast, in in the middle to upper end of the labor market, you see more like 16 percent. So the the concentration is twice as high in in that lower wage side. And I think again, once you account for for illegal immigration, probably closer to three times as high. Mm-hmm. And so there's a variety of distortive effects this tends to have. But one of the ones that that I find most interesting because it it goes to some of the lies that are made at the higher end of the immigration spectrum as well is the distortive effect that mass immigration has on innovation itself. Walk me through what the argument there is uh, in places like the agricultural sector or construction or, or anything else that's very labor intensive, very hand intensive right now. Well, so I think there are two pieces to the argument. The first is just to understand directly the effect on wages. And I think you you nicely teed this up at the start of the discussion. Labor markets do follow the, the logic of supply and demand. Um, and what that means is when you have fewer workers available and have to pay more to attract the workers you need, you will tend to offer higher wages. Again, you you wouldn't think that that's an especially strange or controversial thing to say. I would actually go a step further, though, and say that is, in fact, the only condition under which wages rise, right? An employer, you know, at, at the margins, you, you might have employers who, um, just because they are concerned about their workers, are looking to to ensure that they can support a family and so forth. But but in the in in the center of the labor market where you have profit maximizing firms, under what conditions would firms be willing to offer higher wages? It has nothing to do with how much great work the worker is doing. It is if they cannot get the worker unless they offer the higher wage. And so that dynamic, are there enough workers available at a lower wage or do you have to offer a higher wage, is the core of what dictates the trajectory of wages over time. The second piece, then, to your point about innovation is if if you are an employer, um, the question is, do you want to invest in raising productivity? Um, now, all things equal, is more productivity good for you as a firm? Yes, probably, but it also has costs. And so if you think about making the kinds of investments you're going to need to raise productivity, whether that is in uh, recruiting and training, whether that is in bringing in more equipment, so more capital investment, uh, it will only make sense to do those things if that is less expensive than just adding more workers. And so it's it's at that margin where you say, okay, you know, let's talk about agriculture. We want to pick more crops. Well, we have a choice. We can either just hire more people or we can invest in the people we have being better at crop picking, giving them more advanced equipment to use, et cetera. And, and that's the trade-off that everyone is always facing in, in any industry. And when actually there is an unlimited pool of low-wage workers available to you is your reality, you are overwhelmingly going to choose that. And then what our government, of course, does that makes it even worse is if you get to that point where those workers aren't available – you would think that that would be the moment where you would get serious about investing. That is how markets are supposed to work. But instead, for some reason in America, we say, please just raise your hand and say, quote, jobs Americans won't do. <laughs> um, and then and then we'll create a program for you. So we have this, this agricultural guest worker program, H2A, which it's actually quite recent. I mean, in, in 2005, we had about 50,000 workers coming in each year through this visa program. Now it's more than 250,000. And so even where there, and this goes to this core labor shortage concept, even where there really were not workers available, for some reason, the response of our policymakers 
is to say, well, the way to solve this problem is more workers, even though that's, of course, exactly the opposite of what anyone actually committed to to free markets should actually want to see happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's the jobs Americans won't do cliche is one of the most frustrating things in our immigration discourse. Can you talk a little bit about what your research has evidenced about about how true that is? Like, are there truly industries like agriculture, maybe heavy manufacturing, et cetera, that there just doesn't seem to be interest in, uh, you know, uh, American citizens in, in doing? So, yes and no. And and I think this is exactly the crux of the problem conceptually. And this is, you know, our our project on this. We called it Jobs Americans Would Do. Yeah. And and we start with this hypothetical, which I've become increasingly fascinated by over the past few years, which is thinking about some tech bro in San Francisco who's, you know, he's driving down, he's driving down to LA for a conference, bit probably a Bitcoin conference, if I were to guess. He's looking out the window and he's noticing all of these, you know, farm workers laboring away in the fields for $15 an hour. And and he's pissed with the real estate prices in San Francisco and these developers who are demanding $60, $70 an hour. And he thinks, well, like, that's great. I'm going to move my software development firm to, you know, Fresno, and I'm going to set up some crates in a dusty field, and I'm going to pay developers $15 an hour to sit in a hot field and write code for me. This, This solves all my problems. And so he goes and he does that. And nobody will work for him. And he's really frustrated by this. And, you know, maybe every now and then someone applies but doesn't actually know how to program. And so he calls this a skills gap. Um, <laughs> and and he, he is looking for sympathy. He says, I look at this. I have a job Americans won't do. And he is, of course, correct. But in that context, our response to him would be like, you are obviously an idiot and, you know, one of the worst business people we have ever seen. We wouldn't say like, oh, my gosh, wait a minute. How do we solve this problem and find people to program for him at $15 an hour? And yet his neighbor, who is trying to grow lettuce that way, we say, oh, oh, well, clearly this is a job Americans won't do. The reality is that there aren't a lot of Americans who want to sort of do, you know, really difficult labor in a hot field with no, you know, with poor treatment and no prospect of of progress in a career um, in any occupation. And yet we have, for some reason, this concept that certain occupations just should be that kind of job and other occupations shouldn't. And the funny thing about it is that, you know, the only thing that is in, inherent to the nature of the occupation really is what process you are involved in, right? Even the actual activity um, is highly mediated by technology. So whether picking lettuce means, you know, maintaining a really advanced machine and operating it and so forth, or bending over picking lettuce, it depends. Um, Conversely, you know, optimizing social media ad targeting to sell more underwear, like, I don't know, that's not an especially inspiring thing to be doing. Um, And so it seems to me that if we actually step back and look at like, what are the things we'd get done in the economy? What are the kinds of processes and projects people would want to be involved in? There's no reason that like growing the country's food or building its cars or its houses wouldn't be jobs Americans would rather do as opposed to optimizing its underwear ads or, you know, conducting high-frequency trading schemes. Um, So I just reject the construct. And when people say like, oh, but, you know, what what can you do? It's just picking lists. Like, well, I don't know. If you actually had to grow our food in a way that Americans wanted to participate in the project of doing that, this is what markets are for. Yeah. That's perfect. Go figure it out. Go put tents out in the fields with air conditioning, with the latest video game systems that people spend half an hour playing for every half an hour they work in the field. Pay $35 or $40 an hour. Have an upward career track. And I don't know. My guess is actually you'd find plenty of Americans willing to do that. But then the food prices would go up. This is what I'm told. Why the, is that wrong? Well, the food prices would go up. Yeah. 
first thing to say is the food prices would not go up as much as people think they would, right? The My lettuce would 4X in price, I'm regularly informed. <laughs> well, right. The, you know, the $50 pint of strawberries or whatever. There, there are a couple of reasons that's not true. One is that labor is, is just not that large a share of what you actually pay in the grocery store. Certainly the the sort of low-wage farm labor. I mean, at the end of the day, Everything we pay is is it's it's the labor and the materials. Monsanto scientists that exactly. make strawberry That's seed right. is also labor. <laughs> exactly. Um, but if you actually trace it through, and again, you know, U.S. Department of Agriculture has excellent data on this by crop. Um, you can see that only about a third of the cost of the farming activity typically is actually the labor, and then only about a third of what you pay in the grocery store is actually the cost at the farm. So. Altogether, you know, roughly 10% of what you pay is actually the cost of that low-wage labor, which means if you wanted to quadruple that, make that $15 an hour job a $60 an hour job, um, or maybe a $40 an hour job with lots of time in my air-conditioned tent, um, the end result would actually be not a quadrupling of the price, but a, let's say, 30% increase in the price. So you're $1.70 pint of strawberries would become a $2.50 pint of strawberries. Now, heaven forfend. <laughs> even before we accept that, though, we should keep in mind the second thing, which is, as I keep saying, how markets work. And the fact that if capitalism is working properly the way that we want it to, the way to maximize your profit and be successful in business is finding ways to create better jobs for workers and use them more productively. Mm -hmm. And so if you actually had that pressure on agricultural companies to do more with less labor, they would do it. And we know this empirically. There's a fascinating study of what happened in the 1960s when we ended the Bracero program, which is a massive guest worker program, half a million um, Mexican temporary farm workers, uh, mostly picking crops in, in the U.S., and we, we ended it. And oh, crops are going to rot in the fields. We're like, false. <laughs> Did not happen. Um, there were some shifts. Some relatively more labor-intensive crops became relatively less cultivated. Some other crops became relatively more cultivated. But mostly what happened is we mechanized agriculture. And what people who are skeptical of actually controlling immigration will say about this is, ha, see, you didn't create lots of high-paid farm worker jobs when you did this. The response to that is, of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's no one is no one is suggesting that the actual replacement for the $15 an hour farm worker is a $60 an hour farm worker doing the same thing. It is exactly as you said earlier, this shift in business model. It is a conversion to mechanized agriculture, which means that that the new jobs that we are creating are not substitutes for these not very good jobs we have. They are jobs designing, building, maintaining, and operating much more sophisticated equipment. Um, and so, so where you actually end up, is there maybe some increase in the price of food in some cases? Yeah. Although empirically, again, if you go back to this example, that's probably not what you see. Um, what you probably see are, one, major capital investment in better jobs for the workers who are here at higher wages, um, and some shift in the set of things that we produce and consume. So maybe if the thing that's really hard to mechanize is strawberries, maybe we do eat relatively fewer strawberries. And if the things that's really easy to mechanize is blueberries, maybe we eat relatively more blueberries. And... This gets to the the exact crux in the debate about you know, so much of our economics right now is, is that good for the country? Should we want a trade-off in which, on one hand, we create better jobs for American workers that allow them to support their families, or should we want consumers to have more strawberries rather than blueberries because they like strawberries better than blueberries? Um if all you care about is the consumer experience, then the idea of switching some strawberries for blueberries is just heresy. What? What? How can you not understand economics? Well, and that's consumer experience that itself is distorted by the labor supply of the last 60 years. Well, thank you, because this is the final point, is that one, I would say this is a trade-off we should make. Mm -hmm. But two, I would say... 
who is actually this proponent of the free market here? Is the proponent of the free market the person who says, hey, let's actually have our businesses and workers figure out what they can produce efficiently and at a price that consumers want to pay? Or is the proponent of the free market the person who says, whoa, 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 I really like strawberries in my salad. Let's create a guest worker program. Yeah. And I stand proudly in the in the former camp. For, for the people who shriek about industrial policy all day, it seems like they insist on an industrial policy and a pretty expansive one for said strawberries. Well, so this is, I mean, <laughs> if we really want to get to the heart of it, right, this like goes all the way back to Hayek and the question about like, knowledge and prices, right? In theory, the whole premise of why we ha we have a market economy, why it works so well, is that it transmits these price signals, mm -hmm. right? And so you have this price signal saying like, well, actually, uh, in one direction, you have in the labor market a price signal saying, actually, getting your crops picked may cost more than you thought it would. You need to take that into account. And, and that's then transmitting a price signal into the consumer market saying, actually, strawberries cost cost more than you might want them to. And that's what we're supposed to want. That's supposed to then allow people to adjust their own um, business models and consumption accordingly. And then you have these, quote, free market economists who say, wait a minute, <laughs> I know what the price of strawberries should be. I know what the price of labor should be. And I have a new government program that we are going to implement to ensure that that is where the market lands. And for, for a very long time, thanks in part to our friends in the business lobby, that has been cast as the the free market position. Um, and it's very actually fun to to talk with them directly about that and say, well, wait a minute, why how do you know what that price should be? Um, because it surprise turns out that that they don't. They just know that they like cheap labor because it is good for them as consumers and is good for corporate profits. And they are not the low wage workers who can't support their families. Yeah, the people who shrike them shriek the most about price controls are doing extraordinary gymnastics using real humans, millions of them, to ultimately arrive at price controls as a substantive policy goal. Um, in this mob boss approach to to politics that that the corporate lobbyists and their um, you know, lackeys masquerading as think tank scholars tend to do that there, there's there's two layers to their um, uh, sword they hang over your head. One is the the automation threat. It's like, well, if you don't give us cheap labor, then suddenly you're going to have a fully robotic McDonald's. And we talked a little bit about that, about how that might not be the worst thing. And then the second is is trade. They'll say, well, then I guess we just won't do that here anymore. Uh, I want to take each of those individually. It seems to me as a as a temperature check, tell me if you agree, that in a low immigration environment, the rate of automation that would be created by that low immigration environment would not actually be all that disruptive on net. Do you think that's basically right? I think so. And 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 I would say like automation good. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's technological progress. Good. Right. I it's <laughs> I mean, first of all, it's worth noting here that automation has stalled. Like, notwithstanding all the headlines, productivity growth is in a terrible place in this country. It's It's been slowing in, you know, sort of secular trend for a while. In the last decade, it has fallen off a cliff. I mean, manufacturing productivity has been neg has has fallen over the past decade. We were talking earlier about construction, where this trend has been in place for 50 years. In manufacturing, productivity has fallen over the last decade. We uh, a, we make f less in a factory with a given number of, of workers than we did a decade ago, which is is unbelievable. That, that shouldn't even be possible. Um, and economy-wide over the last year plus now, productivity has been falling, right? You have all of these employers shrieking. Um, I apologize for our listeners. Shrieking is just if, if you work <laughs> if if you work and and spend time speaking with um with with folks in in industry and and certain lobbies. It, shrieking is the only appropriate word. Um, caterwauling. Caterwauling is good. That's right. Sometimes it's a, a more melancholy shriek. Yeah. Um, that there's a labor shortage and they can't find enough workers and and productivity is falling. How? What, what is going on? <laughs> that it is it is totally inexplicable. And so this idea that well, we should be worried about automation um, is is com completely backward. Automation 
is the formula by which we become more productive, jobs become better, a worker for the same amount of time can earn higher real wages and provide more for their family. Mm. And call me when automation is actually happening so quickly that in a healthy growing economy, we are throwing people out of work. But it hasn't happened really since the onset of the Industrial Revolution. And then if you go back and look at it, I think the best evidence actually shows that the problem during the Industrial Revolution was it allowed the substitution of child workers for adult workers. (laughs) So that's a a different podcast. But point being, that sounds like an amazing problem to have and would be the opposite of the problems that we actually have in America today. Yeah. And so the the other uh, mob boss tactic they say is, well, if you want these wages to be so high, we're just going to pick up and move our production to another country, to which I typically say, no, you won't. <laughs> we're not going to let you. What, what do you say to them? Well, so I, I think that that is the correct answer. I think it's it's important as a preliminary matter saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I was told that the premise of free trade is that we all have our comparative advantage and free trade was going to create better jobs at higher wages for American workers. So... How could it be that what trade is actually doing is ensuring that wages can't rise for workers? That's that's surprising. <laughs> and then when I you know, get back off my fainting couch and I'm glad that we all admit the truth of how free trade works, um, I say exactly what what you just did, which is, well, that's what's wrong with how trade works. Yeah. And the the core thing that we should be focusing on in, in the trade context is that Trade is fine. I love the idea that we trade, but but trade should be balanced. The premise of trade should be we make things here that we send elsewhere for things that people making elsewhere want to send here. And that sounds like a fairly simple, obvious starting point. It is, in fact, an assumption underlying all of the classical economists like Adam Smith and David Ricardo who our economists point to and say, well, as you know, trade is good. Like, <laughs> Actually, only true if that condition holds. Um, and so we could, you know, there's a whole conversation about what are the policies to ensure that that condition holds. But, but if you imagine a world and it is within our control to, to be in that world where you have balanced trade, then the actual response to somebody who says, well, we're just going to go make it somewhere else instead is, okay, you can, but if you think you're going to go make that stuff somewhere else to sell it to our American consumers, for the same price. For the same price, you're well, you're right, you're going to have to again have something that we're making here that we're going to trade back. And so at the end of the day, we are going to create the demand in the American market for what American workers do. And and if we make that the core commitment of our policy across immigration policy, across trade policy, um, across a whole host of other policies. Capitalism might actually work. I, I am I am capitalism's greatest booster in believing that <laughs> if you actually understand what it is and how it is supposed to work, it can deliver everything its proponents say and, and that that is what we should be pursuing. What you can't do is ignore all the things that you need for capitalism to work, do the things that just generate sort of high incomes for a small segment of the population and high profits for corporations and then say, well, sorry, that's just that, you know, you must have gotten your policy wrong. Yeah. Moving into the next third of the labor market, um, middle class immigration. Um, you know, this is not typically a category talked about very often, except in the realm of specific professions. I'm thinking nurses, um, doctors, that kind of thing. What, what's the lay of the land in terms of um, the distortive effects or lack thereof of Uh, mass middle-class immigration into the United States. Well, it's interesting that you describe things as, you know, nurses, doctors, as as the middle, because in in the wage distribution, they're actually way up at the high end. Even nurses? Oh, sure. I mean, I think, you know, uh, median salary for a worker in America is, I believe, around 40K. Okay. Um, So, you know, nurses, depending on the market and and so forth, but you're up in the 60 to 80K range in a lot of cases. Um. You know, uh, as I never tire of saying, the the median American worker still doesn't have a college degree Mm -hmm. and certainly isn't working in a field that requires a college degree. Um, So as soon as you're talking about someone who actually has higher education relevant to the job they're doing, you are in what what we call the fortunate fifth. Mm -hmm. That only describes about 20 Mm -hmm. percent. 
um, of, of Americans. And so, you know, it seems to me that that we can talk about that group, but I, I would just say, in a sense, the fact that category two is already that high speaks to the fact that for, in a sense, the, the vast majority of the labor market and those particularly, you know, who are down at the, you know, below that median, um, what you're looking at is a situation where you've had stagnating wages for a long time. Um, you don't have as tight a labor market and, uh, and, and you would benefit from a much tighter one. Um, and actually just to, sorry, now I'm rambling, but this is, I realized very recently, this is my first time getting this particular point out here, which I think is very interesting. Um, you know, economists get all upset about like the labor market is overheated and too tight when unemployment gets down below 4%. It's really interesting to step back and look at the chart of unemployment disaggregated by education level Mm. because it has always been the case that, you know, folks with a college degree tend to have a lower unemployment rate than those with some college, than those with just high school, than those with less high school. Right. And so it's actually interesting to see that. Well, wait a minute. For people with a college degree, the unemployment rate is always under 4%. Huh. (laughs) That's interesting. And wages for those folks have risen. And we've been told that that's good and natural and the market working. But when the folks who in a typical labor market see unemployment rate five, six percent, when that gets down to four percent, then we scream labor markets too tight, labor shortage, because they're finally experiencing the sort of labor market conditions that the folks screaming about it take for granted and experience even in the middle of a recession. Yeah. Just want to point that out for for any listeners who might be interested. Um, but to get up to to get up to those those sort of higher segments that that you're talking about, I think there it becomes a really really interesting political issue, um, because the reality of immigration policy is that from from an economic perspective, what matters is is the composition. Um, and I, I want to step back a little bit before we zoom in because this is one place where the the other side of this argument does have a very fair point, which is that hypothetically adding people to a labor market isn't bad for the labor market or the economy. And the easiest way to think about this is just population growth, right? If I told you like, great news, we solved the fertility problem, you know, we're back up to 2.6 or whatever, the next generation is going to be much bigger than the current one. No one would say like, oh man, like that's going to suppress wages. Because in, in aggregate, if you just take the economy as a whole and expand it population-wise, you create new people in all segments. You create new demand for all the things that people do as quickly as you create new supply of workers. And so that that truly can be to everybody's benefit. Um, so if you imagine a, a flow of immigrants that actually looks exactly like the existing population, labor market and skills-wise, there might be all sorts of other concerns you would have. But economically, labor market-wise, I don't think you'd have much of a concern. And it's interesting. There's actually a fantastic paper in the Cato Institute's Mm. own immigration um, handbook that makes this exact point. That's true. and But then the question is, well, what happens if you start to skew that? So if you skew it so you're adding relatively more low-wage workers, well, now you're adding supply to the low-wage end of the market faster than you're adding demand for what those low-wage workers do, that's where you create that looser labor market. Conversely, and note, that's great for high-wage workers. Right. And it and it also creates a distortive effect on your entire culture because people will naturally gravitate towards a path to that um, high-skilled professional world, and that's how you get the broad sense that everyone needs to have a college degree and then you have all the distorted effects that come from that. Yes. Well, and this comes right back to the jobs Americans won't do concept, which is like, well, as you can see, this job that I do is a highly in demand one, which (laughs) pays so much because of my inherent value. Whereas the job that that person is doing is clearly worth less and is of less inherent value when it is in fact a function of how many people you have able to and wanting to do each type of job. Um, so it's if that skewing toward more low wage labor 
high wage workers love it. First of all, because as workers, they are now the ones benefiting from rising demand in the economy without the rising supply. And because as consumers, they now get to benefit from all the cheaper stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's great for them. If you just say, well, actually, we, we want to go to just a neutral, we're going to find a way to maintain immigration composition. Um, and can you explain why why that the flip side of that doesn't work? Like why why there isn't a commensurate benefit in both realms for the low wage uh, immigrants? Well, so if you're a low wage worker, you do also benefit from the lower prices. Um, the but But the problem is it comes back to this exact same point that as a lower wage worker, your labor is concentrated entirely in low wage labor. Your consumption only uses one small piece of low wage mm. labor. Um, and so relatively speaking, you would much rather have higher wages, which would go up much faster than prices would go up for you. Mm -hmm. um, and so if, if if you're that that high wage worker, um, you you really enjoy the fact that the low wage wages are lower yeah. because you are you are consuming that stuff. You are not that type of producer. And the kind of black swan innovations that make the price for a product one percent of what it was you know the mass immigration scenario makes those less likely to happen and so the the, the burgeoning accessibility of products even is is not available to you because you're part of a mass migration process that makes that less likely well right at, at, at just at the level of business models yeah. you're not um you, you are sort of against interest in um in, in expanding that supply so one response would be to say well okay the ideal policy is just immigration that looks exactly in terms of skills composition like what we have. Mm -hmm. It would just be economically neutral. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. You could do that. It seems to me, though, that given the challenges we have in this country and, and the mistakes we've made for decades now and the desire we should have for, for those at the, the lower end of the um, wage distribution to, to catch back up, we should actually want to use policy to skew things the other way. What if we, relatively speaking, really reduced the rate of immigration into low-skilled work while maintaining or even increasing it, relatively speaking, at the, the higher end? So let's say, for instance, that, you know, roughly speaking, we have a million legal permanent residents entering the country every year. We're going to stick to a million, but we're just going to tip that so that... 70-80% of it is coming in at, at the high end. That would be fantastic for lower wage workers already here. They would see even more increased demand for their work. They would have a lot more leverage and power in the market as workers, and they would benefit from a declining price of the higher wage labor, yeah. right? The cost of legal yeah. services or medical services and so forth. And, and white collar workers would organize into the SS. Like they would lose their well, mind. <laughs> and, so, and so this is exactly the point. To answer your question, what does this mean for a doctor? Yeah. It's, it is a losing proposition for the doctor. Yeah. Now, note, by the way, that all of the people who, if you describe this, will say, wait a minute, that's a losing proposition for the doctor, are the same people who will refuse to acknowledge that it is a losing proposition for the low-wage yeah. worker. The way. But if we are to be more honest than those people, we should acknowledge that just as it has been a losing proposition for the low-wage worker, what we are talking about is, at least in relative terms, a losing proposition for the high-wage worker. Mm -hmm. And that's just a really interesting trade-off to think about. Um, my view is we should embrace that. Mm -hmm. We should say, um, you know, yes, it's not clear to me that that in absolute terms, you know, you're you're going to come out so much worse, right? We're not suggesting that we're like, you know, sending you sending you back <laughs> yeah. to to some prior century's standard of living. Um, but it certainly means that the that the growth in your own income that you have become accustomed to probably slows because the growth is happening elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And this is where, you know, the concept of of the the economic pie does become useful if if we can get the economy growing and productivity rising for everybody, then that's great and everybody can benefit. But to the extent that we're in 
the kind of economic context we we are in and have been in where um seems like some folks are gaining at the expense of others um our policy should certainly be skewed towards helping those who have been left behind mm-hmm. yeah i mean this is uh this is class reparations right i mean this is uh you know over the last 50 years there was a a, a distorted redistributive effect in terms of productivity gains and wage gains and and social standing towards white collar high skill labor in the united states and that's probably bad and we should rebalance things in the other direction well i would i would pr- suggest a different <laughs> term um which is pre-distribution yeah which i think is 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 a super interesting concept as contrasted with redistribution um first of all it, it it bears directly on this discussion because it is worth thinking about for that higher income household. An awful lot of what we've been doing in recent decades to make up for our broken system is taxing them more um, or just borrowing and, and running up debt to redistribute resources to those folks who the economy is not actually delivering resources mm-hmm. to. Um, there is a way in which there is a real upside and gain towards shifting to a system where actually the economy itself produces the distribution that we are instead trying to jury rig after the fact. But it also, I think, speaks to a really important conceptual point, which is, and and this is what we've been talking about throughout this discussion in, in the way that these policy choices affect what jobs pay, that any distribution of income across different workers is in part a function of of the set of policies we choose. And that's where this sort of market fundamentalism that's like, well, as you can see, everyone is just clearly earning exactly what they're worth in the market um, is so unhelpful. It is one of the many ways it is so unhelpful. Um, if we do, in fact, have some substantive preferences for the kind of distribution of income we would like to see in the economy, mm-hmm. which obviously we do, then we should want to use to adopt policies that try to accomplish that type of distribution in the way that the economy functions instead of waiting, having, an, <laughs> having a system that totally maldistributes the income and then correct for it after the fact. And so these kinds of immigration policies, the trade policies we were just talking about, education, I mean, all sorts of policies go to this exact question. Do we want to actually try to make the market work well for folks, which if we support markets should should be our top priority? Or do we want to focus all of our attention on these fights of how we redivide the pie and move from one plate to another after the fact? Mm-hmm. The final part, and we talked a little bit about this, we have the the highest skilled labor in the United States. Um, now, now we we may even have a disagreement on this, but but I would argue that it's a raw deal, no matter how you cut it, in terms of mass immigration, and that you know on on one side of the ledger we we take like you know low skill workers and and we make them compete against um you know a mass migration pool and then we tell them well maybe you should learn to code maybe you should get some skills and then when they come to do that it's like oh we have all these programs here too h1b opt like sorry you're going to train your replacement tech worker at disney or uh, you know amazon or whatever walk me through how you think about the question of of high skill immigration well, high-skill immigration, I think, can mean two very different things. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most important things to say about like H-1B is that it's not actually high-skill immigration right. in a meaningful way. Um, and, and there's actually excellent work from the left of center on this. You know, Economic Policy Institute, um, Ron Hira in particular, does wonderful work looking at like who do these H-1B visas actually even go to, right? They, they tend to be entry-level workers. They tend to be at firms that are actively like their business model is to help people outsource. Um, comically, in the last year of widespread layoffs across Silicon Valley, you continue to see demand for and demand for more H-1B visas. Hmm, how does that work? <laughs> hey, look, the, the labor shortage, there is no time. <laughs> if your goal is cheaper wages, there is always a labor shortage. Right. right? I need a bumper sticker that yeah. we, we can make that a little pithier. But that is the way employers look at this sometimes. Um, so the H-1B kind of stuff, I would just put off to a side and, and say, first of all, just as a temporary worker program, it stinks. Um, 
you know, American Compass, we've done a bunch of work on this point that just whatever you think about permanent immigration and what the right level is, let's let's have that fight under none of those answers are temporary worker programs at all sensible. Um, with uh, there are some interesting industrial policy examples, but with respect to the economy's regular operation, um, we should be getting rid of those anyway. H-1B in particular is this sort of faux high skill thing that is not actually meaningfully high skill in any way. Um, but then what I'd say is is the real crux of the question is, OK, well, how do you feel about um, permanent immigration of people who do have the skills, talents, knowledge to quickly enter the American labor market at the high end, be contributors as um, in in whatever field they are, um, as sort of innovators, in a lot of cases on entrepreneurs. Um, and that's where I would say, you know, in economic terms, I think the the case is quite good that that's pretty much an unmitigated good. Um, th- there are ways that it intersects with other bad policies we have. So, for instance, the fact that a lot of activity is concentrated in like lame tech app development, that's not an immigration problem. That's the, that is a problem with the way we do all sorts of other policy. If you had a, an economic structure that was encouraging entrepreneurial activity in real productive investment in the real economy and lots of talented, high-skilled, permanent immigrants were building great businesses in those fields, um, I see very little to object to about that in economic terms. The um, two caveats are, one, the one we've just been talking about, which is, well, if you are a genuinely um, you know, a high-skilled domestic worker, um, the sort of person who's seen substantial wage growth in recent years is making a solid six-figure salary, does that put pressure on your wages? Um, yeah, in some cases it probably does. Um, I don't have a problem with that, especially since you have, because that job has only attained that status and compensation in the first place, because you've insisted that that's not true, <laughs> not you personally, but as a as as an economics uh, model. Um, but I also think that that is where you also will tend to see the positive multiplier effects, right? I think that that all of the important stories that particularly folks on the right of center and folks who tend to be more pro-business tell that are are true about the importance of entrepreneurship and innovation. It's important just because that they're, they're wrong about lots of other things. We not also throw that out. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ultimately, I mentioned briefly, you know, the place where the economic pie does matter and other things equal, the more we can, the the more we can be getting real growth and innovation, the better. Um, The types of folks who have the skills to deliver that, I think, are really valuable. And and that, that is very different than saying, well, you know, what's really good for economic dynamism is having lots more farm workers. (laughs) Um, So, so presumably those workers are also rare. Right. Like the amount of Einsteins and Elon Musk's or whatever is uncommon. Well, that's certainly true. I And it's actually interesting. We have this set of permanent visas, the, the EB visas. And it's very funny to look through the definitions because there's like EB1, which is like you are truly like a world class athlete or, you know, scientist or whatever. And then there's like EB2, which is like. Well, you seem like you're pretty good at what you do. And then there's EB, and it's just I just think it'd be very funny to be going through the application process and think like, am I an EB one or am I really more of an EB two? Or like, you know, have some random federal bureaucracy say like, thank you for your application. While you're clearly extremely talented, we're not sure we'd call you world class. Um, but point being, like, so so we have that like, oh, you are like, you know, a Nobel Prize winner or you know, a World Cup star or whatever, like. Those are the easy ones. I I do think it's important to look down at that, you know, the EB2 and so forth and say, like, look, if, if you're the equivalent uh, from from um, anywhere in the world of somebody with, you know, uh, a legit STEM degree, you know, master's degree, um, business degree from a, you know, high quality university and, um, you know, that's not to say that 
university degree is the only thing we should look for. That's just one form of credential that works quite well. If you have a proven track record, you know, if you started a successful company somewhere, if you, whatever it is, um, that those folks, you don't, our standard shouldn't be, are you the next Elon Musk? If you're the next person who's going to start a 70 person company in a community somewhere that, you know, does some innovating that employs workers, creates good jobs, helps reshore supply chains, whatever it is, that's great. That's super valuable. And so I think what what makes that category uh, particularly a challenge for conservatives is that that's where there there are real trade-offs. I think in in most of the other buckets, it's very easy to say all the things we care about sort of point in the exact same direction. Mm-hmm. That's where I think there are are very good faith debates to be had about, on one hand, what is the economic upside of increasing innovation and investment and so forth in America? And on the flip side, what is the rate at which we can, for instance, tolerate cultural change, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you said like, at, at sort of at one extreme, like, well, actually, you know, there are tens of millions of people like that around the world. We should try to find them all and bring them all to America tomorrow. Say like, well, yes, I understand why the economic model says that that would really, you know, juice GDP in a useful way. Um, That also seems to run up against some other things that would not work as well in America as a democratic republic, among other things. Um, But the flip side of saying like, whoa, whoa, you know, I don't know how we feel about foreigners. Um, I don't think it's especially in the American tradition or healthy culturally or economically. And so I think that's where there's there's important discussion to be had. You know, my own view is that at least as a starting point, we should look at where we are with permanent immigrant, you know, permanent legal immigration, that roughly a million a year and say, let's get that right. Um, let's act, you know, obviously one huge prerequisite to that is dealing with the illegal immigration problem, which just right off the bat would solve a lot of these labor market issues also, um, solve is too strong, would make progress on them. Um, let's show that we can actually skew the composition within that population, have a skills-based system. Let's show we can get rid of the temporary programs. Um, and then let's look and see where we are. Like on my list of things we need to deal with, all those other ones would be first. If we dealt with those and then looked and said, you know, look, here are some documented challenges we still see we're having. We think it would make sense to reduce. I think you could at least at that point have a really constructive argument about that. I also think it's very possible if you fixed all those other things, you could look at that pool and say, gosh, those things we were worried about outside of the economic realm aren't really concerns so much when you get this other stuff right. Mm -hmm. And if anything, we have we have room to the upside. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's something I wish the like hardcore pro-immigration crowd would would take more seriously is that in the current broken system, we cannot do any of the things they want anyway. Actually getting the system under control, making sure it works for those who've been left behind for so long has to be step one. And then within that, I think we can actually fulfill all of America's commitments and values in, in terms of the kind of country and culture we want to have and build toward the kind of economy we want. Orin, where can people find American Compass's writing on this issue and and every other one? Uh, AmericanCompass.org. Uh, the collection that you mentioned that we just published in particular is called One Simple Trick to Raise Wages. Uh, it's about labor supply generally. The, the main essay is Jobs Americans Would Do. Uh, There's also a great atlas there just running through all the data on labor supply uh, and some good policy briefs on on dealing with guest workers, on how to use E-Verify. Again, really focused on step one, let's get the system under control. uh, And then I think a lot of room to, to make improvements from there. Awesome. Well, I really encourage people to to go and read it. It's it's one of the most enjoyable things I've read. Uh, it's a it's a big chungus essay, but it's worth going all the way through. Um, and and you have some zingers in there. All the right people were angry about it too. Orin, thank you for coming on the podcast. This was awesome. Thank you. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that episode. We certainly did. Um, An event to flag for you guys on June 21st, 2023, Oren Cass and his team over there will be hosting an event for their new book, Rebuilding American Capitalism, an American Compass Forum on Capitol Hill. Be sure to go to American 
compass.org to find that. We'll link it in the show notes below, but we would love to see you guys. We'll be there. It'll be in the Kennedy Caucus Room at Russell, actually, the same place we're hosting AM Fridays. As I mentioned, go, be sure to sign up for that on our website at AmericanMoment.org. Uh, be sure to rate and review this podcast, five stars only. If you leave a funny review, we'll read it. Um, to give you an example of one that was very good that we saw recently, um, if I navigate here to Apple Podcasts on my phone, it turns out uh, someone uh, very recently wrote the review, uh, I like podcast. Um, fantastic. Uh, and we have some uh, more recent than that as well. Uh, let's see here. Uh, a creator of the universe, 90 plus billion light years big and growing does nothing by chance. Each of you at American Moment were born and are alive at this moment in time for a very special reason and purpose. Continue to follow your conscience and fight for the Republic. Do not be afraid. God is with you. You were born for this St. Joan of Arc. Uh, that's very cool. Thank you, Cornerstone. Uh, and that was a five-star review. So if you'd like to leave something nice like that for us, be sure to do so. We will see you guys next week. Thank you, as always, for listening. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.